Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jalani Tulo, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the South Zimbabwe's former minister warns that civil war is brewing in Zimbabwe and concerns over worsening cholera outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In economics news, Capitec reassures customers after a damning report on its finances and in sports news, South Africa names team for the Commonwealth Games. But first up, the news with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Zimbabwe's former Minister of Information, Jonathan Moyo, has repeated his warning that a civil war was brewing in the country. Moyo was also Education Minister under former President Robert Mugabe. He was part of the so-called G40 faction that supported former First Lady Grace Mugabe. Moyo fled the country during the military-backed takeover by Emerson Nangagwa in November. Moyo has reiterated his views that the new administration is the product of a coup and that SADC and the African Union erred in recognizing it. The African Union and SADC need to base their decision not on what the coup makers say, but on what the people of Zimbabwe say and on what the victims of the coup say. The only legitimate way is to have a fact-finding mission. Everyone now knows there are serious tensions between him and uh, the military cabal. He's doing actually the opposite. They are harassing the president's family on a daily basis. A deadline is looming for South African President Jacob Zuma to make representations to the National Prosecuting Authority uh, on why he should not face prosecution for corruption. In December, the authority's head, Sean Abrams, gave Zuma a reprieve by extending the deadline, which was initially set at November 30th. Zuma faces charges of corruption, fraud, money laundering and racketeering. This after the Supreme Court of Appeal dismissed his appeal of a high court ruling, declaring the National Prosecuting Authority's 2009 decision to drop the charges irrational. The charges concerned the multi-million dollar arms deal.
An Egyptian court has sentenced six Muslim Brotherhood members to life in prison over charges including the attempted murder of soldiers and police. Tuesday's ruling by the Cairo Criminal Court sentenced four other defendants to 15 years on similar charges, including belonging to a terrorist group, a murder, and planning attacks against the state. Another two defendants got five years in prison. The Muslim Brotherhood won free elections after Egypt's 2011 uprising when senior Brotherhood figure Mohamed Morsi was elected country president in 2012. United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, has raised alarm over a recent surge in violence in the eastern DRC, which is driving large numbers across the border into Burundi, Tanzania and Uganda. The Democratic Republic of Congo is still recovering from brutal conflict, which led to the loss of 5 million lives between 1994 and 2003. UNHCR says the situation is deteriorating as local conflicts escalate. Four times as many refugees crossed into Uganda during January compared with December and since last week, almost 7,000 people have crossed into Burundi and an additional 1,200 into Tanzania. And finally, the United Nations Security Council has maintained an arms embargo on the Central African Republic. The council has also added incitement to hatred as well as attacks on aid workers as criteria for sanctions. The UN Security Council unanimously adopted a French drafted resolution that would pave the way to targeted sanctions against those fomenting anti-Muslim and anti-Christian violence in the strife-torn CAR. Resurgent armed groups in the country have resorted to hate speech to stoke tensions prompting UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to warn of a risk of ethnic cleansing. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Zimbabwe's former Minister of Information, Jonathan Moyo, who has fled the country, has warned that a civil war is brewing in the country. Moyo was part of the G40 faction that supported former First Lady Grace Mugabe and wanted the younger generation to take over. Moyo says the new administration was the product of a coup and says Sadek erred in recognizing it. The week beginning on the 14th of November 2017, when the Zimbabwe Defence Forces made their presence felt, was a week of reckoning. Army tanks rolled into the capital Harare, signalling political change. By the end of that week, the ageing Robert Mugabe had resigned. Actually did the right thing that was supposed not to take so long. He should have not dragged his legs, he should have done this before, maybe four years back or three years back when he saw that he's whispering, he cannot go on. He should have left the country and said, I surrender. I'm very, very happy, it's finally gone. Yes, we are going to Zimbabwe. No, we are going It ended 37 years of absolute control of the former British colony. And the transition chartered a new political cause for Zimbabwe. Now, Jonathan Moyo, who had been the face of the Mugabe regime to the international world as Minister of Communications and one of Mugabe's fiercest supporters, says he did not jump but was pushed. And he rebukes Sadak and the AU. Jonathan Moyo. 
The African Union and SADC need to base their decision not on what the coup makers say, but on what the people of Zimbabwe say and on what the victims of the coup say. The only legitimate way is to have a fact-finding mission. When visiting South Africa last year after he took over as president, Emerson Nangagwa warned against those trying to destabilize his government. My brothers and sisters, Zimbabwe is your home. You are welcome. Whatever offense we committed to you, please put that behind you. The word says, forgive, forgive. I forgive the cabal. I have said, bygones, the bygones, and they are back in the country except for the three who still are doing something funny, but it will also end. But Jonathan Moyo says he is not one of them. Everyone now knows there are serious tensions between him and uh, the military cabal. And President Mnangagwa is telling a different story. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, he said Zimbabwe will go to elections soon. In my own view, we want to consolidate and deepen constitutionalism in Zimbabwe. And in terms of our current constitution, every five years we are required to submit ourselves to seek a new mandate. So the five-year term ends in July. The constitution allows us to have elections even six months before the last date in July. Uh, Because of the introduction of the BVR, a new system of voting which we are introducing, which is ending, I think, on the 12th of February next month, after the 12th of February next month, I'll be able to make a proclamation of elections. So I believe that elections will not be in July. They'll be earlier than July. And he repeated his message at the recently concluded African Union Summit, where he also said President Mugabe is in fine health and is being taken care of, a statement disputed by Jonathan Moyo. He's doing actually the opposite. They are harassing the president's family on a daily basis. President Mnangagwa returned to Zimbabwe on Tuesday. I'm Takwa Nangatani in Johannesburg. There were dramatic scenes in Kenya yesterday as opposition leader Raila Odinga declared himself the people's president in a ceremony in the capital, Nairobi. Odinga says he won an election last year which was annulled by the Supreme Court that led to a rerun in October which Odinga boycotted and which was won by by President Uhuru Kenyatta, who has since been sworn in for a second term in office. Despite a police ban on the event and the authorities shutting down the main television stations which were covering the story, from Nairobi, the BBC's Mercy Juma reports. Ecstatic supporters of Kenya's opposition leader, Raila Odinga. In their thousands, they turned out to witness the long-awaited swearing-in of their leader, three months after an election he says was stolen from him. And after many hours waiting, he did not disappoint. I, Laila Amolo Odiga, in full realization of the high calling, assumed the office of the people's president of the Republic of Kenya, do swear that I will be faithful 
and bear true allegiance to the people and the Republic of Kenya. That, he says, makes him the people's president. However, the wording of his oath was different from that in the Constitution. The main leaders of the opposition coalition, NASA, including Raila's would-be deputy Kalonzo Musyoka, were absent. The government had warned that such an event would amount to treason and he could face arrest. But instead, the police kept off. By now, every, each and everybody will get their right job, what we know. Baba has never let us down, actually. And that's why we believe that any plan he has for this country is something that is going to take us forward. How is he going to govern without the backing of the military, the judiciary, the international community and the budget? What you should know is one. We are the security. We are the people. We have it. We don't need the military. Earlier there was outrage in the country after the authorities switched off transmission signals of independent TV stations to prevent live coverage of the opposition swearing-in ceremony. Observers say the swearing-in would further divide the nation and the crackdown on press freedom is likely to add concerns about the state of the Kenyan democracy. By Sarah Kimani. Channel Africa. Kulta Njoy, Addis Ababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Higali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Bamwesi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa and South Sudan have signed a Memorandum of Understanding on Cooperation and Defense. The agreement will see the armies of the two countries conduct joint military exercises as well as training and capacity building. South Africa's Defense and Military Veterans Minister Nusi Viwemapisa Ngakula said the agreement will pave the way for the formation of Defense Committee which will meet regularly and advise on areas of cooperation. A South Sudan counterpart Okuol Manyangjuk said an agreement will strengthen relations between the two countries. Sarah Kimani has more. It was an elaborate ceremony preceded by the minister inspecting a guard of honor. Then, down to the business of the day, the signing of the Memorandum of Understanding of Cooperation in Defense between the two countries. This a culmination of months of negotiations. Making demands on government, I believe that with the experience which we have, we can share that experience on how best to build one defense force loyal to the constitution of the republic, loyal to the flag of a country without 
having a, a what should I call it? So it's important for the defense force to have contact with our defense force so that maybe they can take a few lessons, including lessons from mistakes which we may have committed as, 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 as a country as we were moving forward post apartheid era. Capacity building and uh, in all ways, uh, and that will help bring about peace or strengthen peace, because peace in itself uh, is meaningless unless it is supported by development. Also in focus, the current security situation in the country where a civil war has left thousands dead and at least quarter million children on the throes of starvation. South Africa is a guarantor to a cessation of hostilities agreement that has been violated several times. And of course we will continue to support every initiative which is taken by the region here, but also every initiative which is taken by the African Union to bring the people of Sudan, South Sudan. At a meeting held in Ethiopia this week, leaders from the East African region agreed to resume peace talks for the war-torn nation next month. Sarah Kimani, Juba, South Sudan. Former CEO of the Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa, Prasa Laki Montana, has revealed damning evidence against various prominent people with business and political influence. Among those implicated are one of the Gupta brothers, President Jacob Zuma's son, Duduzani, former ruling ANC Treasurer General Zuelim Kize, former Transport Minister Dipur Peters, and various prominent business people who allegedly had links with the Guptas. He also told the committee that Deputy Public Enterprises Minister Ben Martins was not telling the truth about a meeting with one of the Gupta brothers, Tony. Mercedes Percent has more from Parliament. Ladki Montana always made headlines for the wrong reasons when he was still Prasa CEO. He was once accused of taking 10 women on a luxury Shosholoza train trip from Cape Town to Johannesburg at taxpayers' expense. Yesterday, Montana appeared before the inquiry, not only to respond to Ben Martin's claims about a meeting with Gupta, but he revealed more allegations of state capture, and this time in the passenger rail agency. Montana's testimony comes after Martins claimed in the press conference last year that he first met with the Guptas when he was with Montana to discuss the Prasa board. Martins was the transport minister at the time. Montana says it was Martins who called him and introduced him to one of the Gupta brothers. Montana claims that Martins invited him to his residence. I was invited to the house. I was never told what was going to be discussed. I was the CEO of Praza. I was invited by my boss, who's the Minister of Transport. He said, I need to see you. I went to the house. And then we sat there for about 20, 30 minutes. Tea was served. We had discussions about many things. Then two gentlemen arrived that I've never met before. The Honorable Minister introduced them to me, to Duzani Zuma and Tony Gupta. So I think I thought uh, that perhaps it was very important for, for the minister or deputy minister to clarify that I went there in that context. Uh, but I think the impression was created that there I came dragging the Guptas at his house. And I thought that was, uh, that was unfair and comradely. Uh, if I met the Guptas, I wouldn't hide. But why did Ben Martins allegedly call Montana to introduce him to Gupta and Zuma? And he then stated very explicitly that the reason these people want to meet with you is because 
they are interested in the Prasa rolling stock program. And this was on the eve of my departure for Berlin in 2012, September 2012, because every two years in Berlin, there's what you call the Innotrans, which is the biggest railway exhibition conference where all railway manufacturers, railway uh, uh, operators, railway um, uh, financiers of railway rolling stock, and other people would gather. So it's a big event that takes place for an entire week. He told the inquiry that Tony Gupta had made threats against him in a meeting after he reprimanded Gupta and Duduzani. He was responding to a question from EFF chief Floyd Shibambu. When you then reprimanded both Tony and Duduzani in the second meeting when you came back from Berlin, what, what did they say? Did they threaten you with your job? Uh, not not Duduzani, as I said, that he didn't even speak much in that meeting. But uh, Tony uh, Rajesh Gupta did, uh, did, uh, did threaten, and actually he focused his attention on Ben uh, Martins, uh, Honorable Ben, and said that we told you he didn't want Lucky, uh, and you told us that he, uh, he's, he's your comrade. So for me, it tells me that there was a discussion previously when this issue was, was raised somewhere, but it, came, it became evident in, in there. They accused me of supporting Bombardier. He also took on former ANC Treasurer General Zuelim Kize and former ANC Secretary General. Montana claims that Mkize wanted the ANC to be given 10% of a multi-million run tender that was awarded to a company that had to build locomotives for Prasa. He claims that he met with Mkize at a hotel in Senton. Mr. Mkize told, told me and said Prasa is due to pay 465 million rands to Swifambo Rail Leasing, the company that is building not the commuter trains but, but the locomotives. So this was the first payment in line with the contract. And he said, we want 10% of that 465. I refused. I said, like the Guptas, it would be unlawful. I can't tell that company to pay you 10% of because they'll come back to me and said, you said you must pay the ANC that, that 10%. And, and, and if you read my submissions, we were attacked. The former Treasurer General attacked us. And what was interesting that he repeated some of the accusations that Minister Dipua Peters made to us. Minister Dipua Peters, when she started the process, she said, we are not going to be controlled by the French. And I, we had to explain to a minister, we are not controlled by the French. We are guided by the condition, the objective condition of Metro Rail. Montana further says there's no truth in former ANC Secretary General Gweda Mantashe's statements that the ANC was not receiving any money from any company. He says there's also no truth that the ANC does not know Angolan businesswoman Maria Gomez. I've seen the statements written or issued by the, by the ANC, the former secretary, secretary general. He's saying, we never received any money from any company. I met with the former treasurer general. And you know where we met? We didn't meet in some hotel or only at the Tuli house. We were meeting at the house of Maria Gomez. The ANC has issued a statement that they don't know Maria, Maria Gomez. When the treasurer general of the party, myself and Maria Gomez, were meeting to discuss ANC finances and other things. Because as a member of the ANC, that's part of what I was doing, and I had the right to, to, to do that. But again, all of these are on record here. Other people he implicated during his testimony are former Prasa Bochepers and Bobo Molife and ANN7 owner Mzwanele Mani.
But Montana was also questioned about his own dealings in the property market by DA Transport Committee member Mani De Freitas, who attended the inquiry. Uh, Mr. Montana has admitted and confirmed that he knows Mr. Roy Moodley and has, uh, has had dealings with him. Um, what does he say, uh, Mr. Montana, what do you say to allegations that you, through Roy Moodley, properties are bought and given to you? I've explained it in detail. I own properties paid for that I bought via APSA. I had a 10.5 million rand bond facility. I was paying 97,000 rand a month. Roy Moodley was not. I never met him when I bought most of these properties. Roy Moodley, I never appointed at Prasa. I found him there. As I said, he joined, uh, I think he was, he was one of the security companies at Prasa long before I joined Prasa. Montana was applauded for his courage to reveal more evidence, with committee members saying his testimony will assist the state capture inquiry. Committee Chairperson Zuki Swaranto advised Montana to open criminal charges following his testimony. Ben Martins is expected to take the stand at half past nine this morning. That report by Mercedes Percent in Parliament. The Gauteng government in South Africa says it's not true that the provincial health department was pressured by the provincial and national treasury to cut costs. Former health MEC Tretani Mahlangu and former head of department Bani Silibano told the arbitration hearings in Parktown, Johannesburg, that the decision to terminate the long-standing contract with Life Essidimeni was necessitated by budgetary constraints. However, during their testimonies yesterday, both Gauteng Premier David Makura and his finance MEC Barbara Creasy disputed that version. They expressed their regret and also apologized for the deaths of 144 mentally ill patients who lost their lives after they were transferred to unlicensed NGOs. Wisani Makubele has more. Gauteng Finance MEC Barbara Creasy says while the Gauteng provincial government has been under pressure to cut costs, these did not include departments such as health, education and social development which provide core services. She says they were targeting non-core services such as traveling, catering and events. I specifically outline in the budget our cost reduction targets on non-core areas. And I spell out what the targets are and what the non-core areas are. I think, I think, Justice, it's important to say that the provision of health services, education services, and social services, as well as housing, are core areas of provision for the Gauteng Provincial Government. While claiming to be cutting costs, it also emerged that the Department of Health spent 60 million rand on lawyers over a period of 10 months battling court challenges against the transfer of patients to NGOs. Premier David Makura says the department listed him as a respondent, stating that he was opposing the court challenge without his knowledge. The department also paid consultancy firm McKinsey 435,000 rand for a two-day seminar. MEC Creasy says health provision can never be compromised to save money, saying the department has been receiving increased budget allocations over the past few years. In that financial year, 15-16, we increased the health budget by 400 
and 96 million. This would have been the, the provincial contribution. So what we can see is between 1415 and 1516, which is the budget that we are addressing here, the, the Department of Health budget was not cut justice. It went up from 31.4 billion to 34 billion rand. Chrissy concluded her testimony by apologizing to the affected families, saying she was filled with shame for being part of a government that was responsible for the loss of so many lives. She was followed by Premier Makura on the witness stand, who also started off by apologizing to the families before facing questions. Makura says as head of the provincial government, he accepts accountability for the deaths of 144 psychiatric patients. And I want to repeat that there can be no justice without the truth. So I am here to apologize once more, but to also answer questions about what I knew and of those things that I knew, what did I do as the head of government in the province? Because I can't pass the back as the head of government in the province, the back stops with me. Makura says he only found out from Health Workers Union Nehau in November 2015 about the termination of the contract with Esidimeni. Before then, he says the department had only indicated it was reviewing its contracts and that there was no mention of patients being taken to NGOs. The meeting with Nehau was over the union's concerns about job losses. Makura says when he inquired with the then MEC Kadani Mashango and former HOD Banisi Livano, they told him all Esidimeni employees would be absorbed within the department. The key thing on that day was they, so they said they have already, there's already a contract terminated. There are workers who have lost their jobs. There is another one that is uh, going to be terminated. Workers will, will lose their jobs, but they also want to discuss the issue of policy. The MEC said uh, she has been engaging together with the HOD, the unions, with regard to uh, the intention to insource. Makura is expected to conclude his testimony this morning before the appearances of Health Minister Arun Mutswalidi and current Houting Health MEC Gwen Ramokhopa. I'm Wisani Makubele in Johannesburg. Channel Africa. Kultra Njoy Adi Sababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Our headlines up next is Jalani Tulo.
Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, Zimbabwe's former Minister of Information, Jonathan Moyo, has repeated his warning that a civil war was brewing in the country. A deadline is looming for South African President Jacob Zuma to make fresh representations to the National Prosecuting Authority on why he should not face prosecution for corruption. And finally, the United Nations says more than a quarter of a million Syrians have fled the northwest of the country since the middle of December last year after the government launched a new offensive. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says a scourge of corruption continues to discourage foreign direct investment. He was addressing the National Economic Development and Labour Council meeting in Pretoria, where leaders of various labour movements are discussing measures to stimulate economic growth in order to reduce the high unemployment rate. The annual NEDLAC gathering is taking place under the theme Building Worker Power to Advance Good and Clean Governance to stimulate inclusive economic growth and decent jobs. Tseboeganeng has more. South Africa's image has been tarnished as a result of the revelations of state capture, rampant corruption and fraud. This has led to the downgrading of the country's credit rating, a scenario which has exacerbated the high levels of unemployment, poverty and inequality. Ramaphosa says he will ensure that law enforcement agencies act against those implicated in both public and corporate sector corruption. ESCOM has been malfunctioning, but there's also been rife theft and corruption and embezzlement that has been going on in ESCOM. Now, that, that has in a number of ways impeded our growth, but that has not only been happening in the public sector. In the private sector, in the corporate sector, they've been stealing money left, right, and center. That's why we have the Steinhoffs, where the billions and billions of your members' monies has just disappeared down the drain. And we are saying on that too, those people who are responsible must be hunted down and they must be arrested and locked up. Now, those types of things impede growth. Meanwhile, business has been accused of being on an investment strike, leaving government to be the single major investor in the economy. There have also been massive retrenchments in the mining and manufacturing sectors. It's for this reason that government has stepped up efforts to engage with business and labor unions to bolster investment and consumer confidence. The General Secretary of the Trade Union Federation, Kosatu, Bekin Chalinchali, has denounced the tendency by some private sector companies to prioritize offshore investments over domestic markets. One of the issues that we want to, to raise in discussion is about the South African economy investing offshore. You can't invest outside of the country and ask other people to invest in your country because that shows that you've got lack of confidence in your own country and we're investing outside in other people to invest where you have no confidence. On The level of the investment by, by business is low. Business have told us, uh, giving reason as to why they don't want to invest, why they keep money in the bank, and it was uncertainty, policy uncertainty, political uncertainty. That needed to be addressed by government. It's for this reason that Ramaphosa has emphasized the need to punish business executives accused of what he terms economic sabotage. We want to have a capable and efficient developmental state and this will not be able to take root if we still have greed, economic sabotage, 
and patronage because there has been economic sabotage. And the economic sabotage is one thing that we need to bring to a stop. Because when there is sabotage, when there are people who are willfully and intentionally sabotaging the nation's intention to move forward, they must be stopped. They must be brought to book. They must be put behind bars where they really belong. To stimulate economic growth and job creation, the social partners which consist of government, business and labor have adopted several interventionist programs like the National Development Plan, the New Growth Path, the Human Resource Development Strategy and the Nine Point Plan. General Secretary of the Federation of Unions of South Africa, FEDUSA, Dennis George, says government needs to fast-track the implementation of socio-economic development plans without any further delay. Our belief is implementation. You know, it's no use you have, and how many plans don't we have? We have the National Development Plan, we had GEAR, we had ASGISA, we had JOBSA, we had so many plans. But when it comes to implementation, we fail. So we don't want to see another plan. We want to see and hear how the social partners, business, labor, government, community, and all our families and citizens are going to work together so that we can implement the plans, so that we can get rid of unemployment, we can get rid of poverty, and we can get rid of inequality. There's also been calls for the staging of another job summit or economic CODESA as proposed by the UDM leader, General Bantu Holomesa. The ANC's NEC Lekota last week also resolved on such an intervention. Tsepo Ikaneng in Pretoria East. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has sounded the alarm over the ongoing cholera outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which it says could be the worst since 1994. Others say the outbreak has reached worrying proportions. So far, about 55,000 cases and close to 1,200 deaths have been reported in the country. To find out more on this, Elizabeth Ledecha spoke to Pierre van Jerichem, field coordinator for MSF's emergency team in the DRC. DRC is actually, it's currently, well, since 2017, seeing the biggest cholera outbreak in 20 years. 55,000 people got infected in 2017, of which almost 1,200 died. The epidemic on a national level is declining uh, right now, but there are still some areas in Congo that are severely affected, and one of the recent zones is, of course, Kinshasa, the capital of DRC, which has seen at least an outbreak and a rise in numbers since end of December 2017. What are some of the reasons why this outbreak has increased in such a way this year? Um, as Doctors Without Borders, we're into the medical response towards the uh, emergency and the analysis, let's say the analysis is more a responsibility of uh, health authorities. Of course, what we do see is that, like in the city of Kinshasa, Kinshasa has seen a rise in population numbers. Kinshasa is now a city of 12 to 13 million inhabitants. Nobody really knows exactly how much, and many of which are living in very poor and precarious conditions with lack of access to drinking water, lack of sanitation, and also lack of health infrastructure that is properly adapted to provide treatment in cholera-affected areas. You mentioned that Kinshasa is one of the areas that is affected. Which other areas have been hardest hit, and how are you as MSF assisting in those priority zones? Traditionally, the east of Congo is an endemic area. So the Kivus, Tanganyika, 
the former Katanga province, so the whole eastern part of Congo, uh, sees regular cholera outbreaks. Of those 50,000 people that got infected in 2017, around 25,000 were treated by MSF. Remind us how cholera is transmitted and who is facing a particularly high risk of infection. So cholera is a bacterial disease and the bacteria mainly lives in water, contaminated water, contaminated by feces of people who were contaminated before. So you can get cholera by drinking contaminated water, by being in contact with feces, but also flies that have been in contact with feces then go onto fruit that is not properly washed. Disease that can be easily eradicated if there are proper hygiene measures taken. So the people who are primarily affected are most of the time the most vulnerable population. So people living in slums, people not having access, as I said, to drinking water, to sanitation facilities. So it's mainly the most vulnerable population that is most at risk. Has there been a sense of urgency in your view from the different role players in terms of preventing the spread of this epidemic? Yeah, of course, this kind of epidemic needs coordination between different actors. So we have daily meetings with the Ministry of Health, with people from the World Health Organization, other actors, in order to coordinate different actions. So as MSF, we're mainly focused on the medical side, so treating the patient, but we're also doing sensibilization. But of course, Kinshasa is such a big city, we cannot be everywhere. So it's very important that other actors do sensibilization in zones that we do not cover. Of course, there's also sanitation, water sanitation measures that needs to be taken. So we're closely, closely in contact with other actors. In the end, of course, if we really want to eradicate cholera once and for all in Congo, there is definitely a need for structural solutions. It means people need drinking water, people need latrines. So I think it's very important for the international community to continue to invest in DRC in order to help the Congolese population in the long term. Pierre van Jerichem, a field coordinator for Doctors Without Borders emergency team in the DRC, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. It's 7.36 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Several dozen vocal protesters gathered at one of New York's major transit hubs to call for the release of a 17-year-old Palestinian activist who is being held in military detention for slapping an Israeli soldier. Ahed Tamimi was arrested when Israel, Israeli forces raided her home in the West Bank village of Nabi Saleh on December the 19th. Ahed's confrontation with the soldier happened outside her home where weekly protests again against Israeli settlement activity have been held for years and after her 15-year-old cousin was struck in the head by an Israeli rubber bullet. Her actions and subsequent arrest have turned her into a symbol of Palestinian struggle. Shown Bryce Peace reports. Listen to the scene inside New York's Pennsylvania train station. With a large group calling for Ahed's freedom, facing off against a much smaller group of pro-Israeli protesters who feel her arrest and incarceration is justified. Noor Shamun was among the group calling for her release. We're here for um, Israeli occupation forces to free a 17-year-old girl that was um, uh, detained for slapping uh, uh, an Israeli soldier after shooting her cousin 
and continuously uh, suppressing her the protests of her village and um, uh, ransacking uh, her home. So, so you feel her actions were justified? Of course, she is resisting her occupiers. So she is facing a military sentence of 10 years in prison and she's a minor and it's uh, apartheid, the classical apartheid. Ahed Tamimi will face trial starting on February 6th alongside her mother and cousin and has been held in custody since her arrest in the middle of December last year. And while an adult accused of assaulting an Israeli soldier could face up to 10 years in prison, it's unlikely that such a stiff sentence would be meted out against this young teenage activist who turned 17 today. Judith Ackerman was holding a free Ahed, free Palestine poster. I'm heartbroken over what's happened to Israel. It's become a horrible apartheid state. The protest, part of a series of worldwide actions to mark Ahed's birthday in detention today, but a small counter-protest had Jim MacDonald among its most vocal. I'm here to express my support of Israel. These people over here think Ahed is this wonderful hero. In reality, she's a terrorist. She's the point person, throws rocks at Israeli soldiers, tries to provoke them. They wind up getting killed. These people are slime, and we're here to show that most of America opposes them. What do you think the solution is going to be moving forward for Palestine and Israel? Okay, I think the solution is that Palestine, Palestinians move out and live with their Arab neighbors. A group of Orthodox Jews also gathered in support of the Palestinian cause. Listen to Yitzhak Deutsch. We represent the Jewish people. We are here to say to the world uh, that Zionism is against our religion. Zionism is to kill other people and to steal people's lands and to kill, to arrest children. We are here for peace. Judaism is our connection to God and to be connected with God, not to steal and kill other people. Police maintained a strong presence in keeping the opposing groups apart. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabitha Lohoko. A very good morning and thanks, Balungile. Economists say it's up to the markets to decide whether to believe U.S.-based research group Viceroy's report on the South African retail banking group Capitec or not. Shares in Capitec tumbled to 20% before recovering most of the loss after Viceroy said Finance Minister Malusiki Gaba must immediately place the bank under curatorship. The group alleges the bank is a loan shock masquerading as a microfinance provider. Viceroy exposed accounting irregularities at retail giant Steinhoff last year. Economist George Glennis is advising investors to treat the report with caution. I would caution uh, investors to not just blankly just believe uh, whatever research is out there. You really do need to look at these things yourself and, and make sure that um, you understand fully what you're investing into. 
also, uh, you know, it, it pays to, to perhaps pay attention to um, the likes of the Reserve Bank that's come out and, and given assurances um, and, and to listen to the board as well. Meanwhile, the CEO of the Capitec Bank, Kheri Furi, has rubbished the Viceroy's report accusing the research group of being profit-driven and one-sided. Furi has questioned the motive and timing of the Viceroy report. I've got a concern if a report comes out and it's, there's a lot of inaccuracies and they're not prepared to talk to us. Uh, and when you short a stock and then bring out a report, there's for sure a profit motive. But I don't know what the real motives. And like I said, we've always been open to anyone if they've got questions. And so they could have got all of us and then brought out a report. Namibia will remain on the European Union blacklist as long as it refuses to ratify the Organization for Economic Cooperation and a Development Convention, OECD, and abolish harmful preferential tax regimes. The EU blacklisted Namibia last year together with countries like Panama, South Korea, Samoa, Trinidad, and Tobago. The OECD is an intergovernmental economic organization with 35 member countries founded. In 1961, a Francophone African insurance group, Sunu, has bought a substantial 67% of equity assurance company Liberia. This represents a total of almost 1.4 million US dollars of shares bought by the group. The acquisition has given Sunu Group presence in the Liberian market. The partnership will bring keen competition in the market and agenda growth. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.96 to the South African rand. It's at 9.44 in Botswana and at 9.71 in Zambia. It's also trading at 70 pence to the British pound, 80 cents to the euro. Gold, $1,345. Platinum, $999. Dollars an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $68. 65 cents a barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoko, live from Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, it's rugby news. Former Springbok 7's captain Kylie Brown believes that whoever steps into the shoes of injured Blitzborger captain Philip Sneiman will have their work cut out for them, with most of the players being leaders in their positions. Brown is likely to take over the reins of the team for Hamilton League of the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series after having captained the side for a new season before Sneeman took over. Yeah, also slightly unexpected, but um, happy to be. It was probably one of the, the ones that I've had the most fun in, um, sitting outside Frodo's house. Very interesting. Uh, very comical, and I think uh, a lot of boys had a good laugh at it. Sometimes things become a little routine. Um, didn't really know what to expect from Hamilton when I arrived yesterday, and, and you know we took a drive out a bit into the country, um, you know half an hour away from the city, and we're on the set of The Hobbit now. Uh, incredibly interesting and, and a little bit uh, surreal, you know, seeing something that was you know in a couple of movies and something that you know when you grew up watching it, you were you're quite in awe of it all. 
we've actually got a good couple of leaders in the squad. So, you know, slotting into where Philly left out is, um, I suppose, in leadership roles, maybe not the most difficult thing. But I think on the on-field performance, Philly's, you know, you bring something completely, completely different and something really extra to the team. Um, he's uh, he's an incredibly hard worker and he's very you know he's very uh, ruthless on the ground too, especially his work rate in defence. Um, and I suppose uh, whoever's going to take his uh, take his spot this weekend on, on the field is is going to have uh, his work cut out for him. Brown believes the team is moving in the right direction, especially with the experience within the team, and that players like Mula Duplessis and Zane Davids, who will be joining the squad in place of the injured Sneiman and Ruhan Nail, are a good addition to the side. I think they're a great bunch of guys and uh, easy, easy guys to lead, you know, and that's, um, I, I suppose I say easy guys to lead, but they don't really need much leadership, you know, they're all very mature players in their own individual right, and I think they're all growing to such fantastic leaders, uh, personally that um you know it's a it's, it's a pleasure to be part of the squad yeah 100 percent. i think that's that's what we've been working towards for quite some time um and even if we look towards the squad this weekend bringing in somebody like melody duplessis who's who's you know a boy who finished school last year um constantly looking at uh, you know the next one to to keep filling places when situations like this happen that you know by the time he's 22 23 years old that he has a good couple of caps under his belt um he's an experienced campaign on the circuit and that he can just slot in really easily to to a team that's hopefully moving in a good direction and in Olympic news, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC President Thomas Bach, arrived in Pyongyang, South Korea, ahead of the 2018 Winter Games. Bach shook hands with officials, volunteers and numerous fans once he arrived. The German head of the IOC also praised the Olympic spirit shown by North and South Korean ice hockey players after they were pictured together celebrating a North Korean player's birthday. I'm uh, really very pleased. Uh, to learn uh, the news about the birthday party uh, among uh, the players uh, yesterday. That is uh, the Olympic uh, message. That is uh, the Olympic uh, spirit. North and South Korea's joint ice hockey team continued training this morning, a day after the North cancelled a joint performance with the South. The North 12 players were added to the existing South Korean women's squad of 23, and at least three North Korean players will be selected for each match. And the Russian President Vladimir Putin admitted that there were some cases of Russian athletes doping during the Sochi 2014 Winter Olympics, which led to the International Olympic Committee investigation. However, Putin says the situation in Russia is not unique and similar cases could be found in many countries around the world, adding that Russia intends to cooperate with the International Doping Authority on the investigation. The scandal over the Sochi 2014 Olympics triggered by revelations made by Grigory Rodchenkov is part of a broader doping affair that has led to the suspension of Russia's anti-doping agency, RUSADA, the country's Athletics Federation and the Paralympic Committee. Putin called Rodchenkov an idiot and suggested that the whistleblower should be placed behind bars for his activity in Russia. And finally, with golf news, South Africa's Ivana Samu hopes to use her extensive knowledge of Fontaine Golf Club in Johannesburg as a springboard for success when the Joburg Ladies Open gets underway today. A top five finish in last week's Canon Ladies Tournament Open after a month-long injury layoff was just a shot in the arm. The second season professional needed as she targets a Sunshine Ladies Tour breakthrough in the city of Joburg showpiece. That's a sport news this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa tuza Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa, Ras and Shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwe's former minister warns that civil war is brewing in the country and concerns over worsening cholera outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That wraps up Africa, Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Tutongoveni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327. I'll take us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Wanda Baloy with a song titled Happy to Love.